Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan and interim Tommy Martin. Coming up this hour, two scientists talk about water resources and ecosystems in a changing planet. We'll talk with University of California evolutionary biologist Professor Erica Zavaleta about her work on ecosystems and how they adapt to extreme changes in climate. And with Dr. Adina Payton, Professor of Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz, about the recent Orville Dam failure and other water resource stories unfolding as our climate changes here in California and elsewhere. If you want to ask our guests a question, you can write down this email, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And I'd like to welcome my co-host, Joe Jordan. Hi, Joe. How are you doing today? Hey, Rachel and Tommy and Jason and Adina and everybody everybody else out there in Radioland. There is a Radioland. I hear it's, it's actually on a map in Planet Watch Universe, alternative mm. universe. That's called Radioland. If you look it up on the GPS, you'll find it right at uh, AM 1080 and elsewhere on the dial. Um, so we have a couple of news items we'd like to share with you, and then we're going to dive right into our guests. But first, the news. Yeah, I've got a lead-off story here today. University of Toronto Engineering Innovation could make printing of solar cells as easy and inexpensive as printing a newspaper. Dr. Hiran Tan and his team have cleared a critical manufacturing hurdle in the development of a relatively new class of solar devices called perovskite solar cells. That's P-E-R-O-V-S-K-I-T-E. This alternative solar technology could lead to low-cost, printable solar panels capable of turning nearly any surface into a power generator. Thanks to Science Daily for that report. And I'm just going to comment that um, I've been telling folks about perovskites for a long time. And uh, I'm glad that we're starting to really finally hear about it in the mainstream. These are rocks. They're based on rocks. I mean, it sounds Russian, right? Perovskites. Well, they were first identified in the Ural Mountains which any grade school geography expert should know. The Urals are the mountain range that officially divide Europe from Asia. Well, anyway, the other exciting things about the perovskites and more later on later shows is that they might well be able to sequester, help us sequester vast amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. So you get a double whammy, a double wonderful whammy with these perovskites. So stay tuned. <laughs> And uh, coming one. up next, we have a story. It uh, turns out, all you Californians, that uh, war and violence over resource scarcity has been with us for thousands of years. Studying ancient native burial grounds in Central California, Cal Poly's Dr. Mark Allen found remains showed that about 7% of the population a thousand years ago in California had evidence of forced traumas, whether they were shot by an arrow, stabbed, or bludgeoned. Uh, a percentage of violent trauma not even reached during World War II, said the researcher Mark Allen. And this is compared uh, to the environment they lived in. And he made some assumptions based on the scarcity of resources and the amount of violent incidents to say that uh, violent conflict has been with us ever since resource scarcity has. And the, the image of happy Californians with plenty of food actually turns out to not be exactly correct. So um, he said the challenge is to figure out what we're going to do um, when there is resource stress, not to have conflict in the world. Hmm. Maybe we need uh, Adina or Rachel or somebody else of the female gender for president. Maybe that's uh, the kind of thing we need to reduce stress and conflict in the world. <laughs> Actually, and what was interesting, I think, was 7% um, of the traumas impacted were male uh, skeletons and 11% were female skeletons. It sounds like everybody was part of the mayhem and victims and perpetrators. So mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, who knows what it was really like, but there's some assumptions being made now that they're looking at all these burial sites. It looks like resources were always a source of conflict when they're not abandoned. <laughs> right. And Adina, if I can get you to bring that mic closer, we'll be, you'll have your higher volume. There we go. And tell me, you have a story that, that I found really interesting when I yeah, first heard about me it. Yeah, too. Um, yeah, it's about the, once again, ice caps. Uh, dr drastic measures are being considered to combat the alarming rate at which these Arctic ice caps are melting. According to the Guardian, uh, physicist Stephen Desch and a team of team from Arizona State University have proposed an idea to build 10 million wind-powered pumps over the Arctic ice cap. Um, in winter, these pumps would be used to bring water to the surface, where it would freeze and thicken the ice cap. 
Dash argues this process could add an extra meter of sea ice to the shrinking ice caps, which rarely exceed two to to three meters of thickness. Dash and his team have published their plan in Earth's Future, the journal uh, of the American Geophysical Union. Uh, They propose a cost of $500 billion, (laughs) billion with a B, for their extreme answer to our climate crisis. While this price tag may make this proposition seem imaginative, with ice growth stalling in January, uh, completely the heart of the Arctic win- in the heart of the Arctic winter, it may be given more consideration. And, so. and you know, just to comment on this, uh, $500 billion seems like a lot of money, but imagine the cost uh, dealing with the crisis that, that all of these weather disruptions and crop disruptions could cost the world. I, I just think it's probably a sign that these drastic measures even being discussed um, shows either the desperation of uh, some of the scientists proposing it or it, they're just perhaps not even really hoping it'll get traction, but they're just wanting to get our attention that things yeah. have gotten that bad, that people are proposing really kind of crazy ideas just because it has gotten that bad. So I don't well, know what you think I, about that. I want to say something in defense of the idea. I mean, you know, we're going to have to do some, We're already doing drastic things, okay, in the wrong direction. We need to start doing maybe some drastic things in the right direction. This one, you know, could be feasible. I mean, 10 million is a lot of uh, wind pumps, but hey, how many cars do we make in the world every year now? And as far as the price tag, 500 billion, all right, that's half a trillion. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but but look, the thing I wonder about is, okay, those wind pumps are presumably going to be mounted. Maybe they'll be floating. Maybe they'll have floating bases, but if they're anchored to the bottom of the Arctic, I, this story's so new, I haven't had a chance to check this out yet, but there are these methane clath rates on the bottom of the ocean in various places in the world. We do not want to wake those things up. <laughs> they may extinguish us. <laughs> so uh, got to be careful about what's on the bottom, what lurks in the deep in the Arctic. Um, but anyway, so Sounds it, like interesting. Sounds like a science fiction movie. Interesting <laughs> item there. <laughs> life is becoming a little more like a science fiction movie. Oh, and the idea of <laughs> pumping the water up, by the way, it's colder water at depth, so it's already got a head start towards freezing. That's why you want to pump up the water from the depth. Indeed. Okay. Well, we're very happy to welcome our two guests to the show. Uh, Erica Zavaleta is with us by telephone from Colorado, and she has done work in evolutionary biology. She's studying ecosystems and how they are changing, uh, how rapidly we will find out um, in the places she's studying them in relation to changing climate. We are also very lucky to be joined in person in the studio by Dr. Adina Payton. She is Professor of Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz, and she studies water systems, among other things, um, both here and, I believe, in Mexico. So, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having us. Hey, Erica. Good to hear your voice from Colorado there. (laughs) So, I think we'll start with you, Erica, and what I wanted to do is just find out a little bit about your research there, what you're studying and what you're seeing, And from an earlier conversation, it sounds like um, what you're being able to witness is happening in in human lifespan time, whereas it might not have in a climate that was not changing so fast. So I wonder if with that context in mind, you could uh, just give us a brief overview of what you're working on and what you're seeing. Sure. So um, as you said, I study the effects of climate change on ecological systems. And I also look at how climate change affects interact with other environmental changes. So climate change is not the only thing that's changing around here. Climate's one of many things that are happening. Um, and so over the last 20 years, um, my work in that area is focused on California because it's home and it's a really special place and also on places that are experiencing particularly rapid change. And that's included um, Arctic and boreal ecosystems up at high latitudes and now high elevation alpine ecosystems at lower latitudes, which is where I am now in southwestern Colorado. So in both Arctic and Alpine systems, you know, we're seeing thresholds cross more rapidly and seeing things like really, really rapid increases in temperature compared to what um, we're seeing at lower latitudes and elevation. That means that the timing of biological events is changing faster water supply timing and amount is changing faster. Um, the responses of ecological communities are happening more quickly. And then people, human communities in those settings are also experiencing a huge range of, of impacts and that's people in the 
um, individual sense, and it's also people in the sense of industries and livelihoods. So that whole range of things is what I'm interested in. Up here in the high mountains of southwest Colorado, one of the things I've focused in on is actually the responses of North America's highest breeding songbird, um, the uh, rosy finches. And I was just captivated by how they integrate all of these changes that are happening to snowpack, to temperature, to extreme events all year round, and in other arenas, like uh, to the availability of food for them as introduced fish become more prevalent in high alpine lakes. They also migrate, so they tie together much of Western North America, and they're vulnerable along that whole span, that whole region, um, to the different kinds of changes that are occurring. So that's one particular thing that I've been paying a lot of attention to the last couple of years. And Erica, I wonder, um, are you on a speakerphone? Because if we could get you on a uh, closer up uh, to the mic, maybe of your telephone, we would get a little bit of auto audio quality boost out of out of our sure. conversation. I'm on headphones, but I will take them off and see if that helps. Okay, let's try that. Yeah, just see see if we can get an adjustment on the tech here to continue our conversation. Does this sound any better? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, I'll just yeah. hold this one up to my ear. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. Um, so you're seeing animals responding, and, and you said people because of the industries. Um, can you give an example of how um, animals are being able to cope with this rapid change? I mean, through, throughout history and, and the evolution is your background, right? Um, animals have been able to adapt to some pretty extreme changes, but maybe not over this short of a period of time. Is that something you're... Wondering if some of them will just go extinct because they can't move, or, or what do yeah, you see? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are three reasons why this is different from any past event that animals have had to adapt to. And it's true for people, too. Um, one, you just mentioned, it's the pace of change. So the speed with which the climate is changing is much more rapid than we've seen in the past. And there have been brief periods in the past, um, in long history, um, of course, when climate has changed really, really rapidly, we're looking now at a sustained event. I mean, this is this is going to be centuries, um, unless something really dramatic happens, and it's going to be you know at least a century. So there's the pace. There's what other obstacles they're facing. So the landscapes through which animals were able to respond with movement in the past through geological time are all cut up now. We've got urban areas, roads, huge landscapes that are transformed, and so. At many different scales, the opportunities for movement are more limited. And then the third difference is that almost every population of wild plants or animals out there has already been reduced in its distribution and reduced in its numbers um, by quite a bit. So they're just coming from behind to begin with. They're not as many of them with as much genetic diversity to be able to respond to something new like climate change. So you deal with um, higher elevations where things are already struggling because of high altitude. What are some of the challenges, some of the critters, and, and you said you studied birds, and what are some of the other ones you've studied? Um, what are some of their challenges in migrating, moving, and what are you seeing them do? What are they trying to do to try to adapt? Sure. Um, the, well, first of all, um, things that live at these elevations in places like Colorado or that live at high latitudes, like that live up on the northern slope in Alaska or in the boreal forest at the edge of the northern slope, you know, they're adapted to deal with these extreme environments. So very seasonal environments and a lot of variability and change. So in some ways, you know, they're well set up to deal with um, a lot of fluctuation and extremes. But they're also adapted to things like snowpack. Um, snowpack means food availability and moisture availability all the way through the summer, even in a dry, hot climate like the southwestern U.S. at these elevations. And as we're losing snowpack, which is happening very, very fast, that's really changing the water balance in the system, and that cascades up through the whole food web. So that's one big kind of change we're seeing here. At higher latitudes, that same kind of phenomenon, the earlier amounts, the earlier loss of water from the system, and in high latitudes, also the loss of permafrost mean that systems are much more vulnerable to wildfire um, and plant communities are changing really fast too. And so you see other kinds of animals, moose, caribou, um, having to deal with both 
changing food availability and wildfires, and then also sort of the northward march of the plant communities that they depend on. And so they're moving really fast. We didn't talk about people yet. In Alaska, one of the challenging things about that is that people who depend on all of those animals for food are, you know, they're seeing the animals they've relied on, in some cases for millennia, disappear from the places where they live. Dina had a question for you. Yes, yeah, since you mentioned people, Eric, I was wondering if there's anything that we as people can do to either plan, adapt, reduce the impacts. Thanks for that question, Dina. It's great to be on the air with you. I just want to say, um, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that because I feel like I'm painting a, a, a story of despair. Um, there's a lot that that people can do and i think that's you know many many different levels so we could spend a long time talking about that but i guess what i would say is that you know people who live in these particular settings i mean they have to um you know respond with all kinds of ingenuity and innovation and in some cases help from the government and so on um you know to cope with with the changes they're seeing but i think more at the level of our listeners and you and me and our students um, when the things we can do are vast, I think they start with things like voting and then they go on to things like becoming educated about the science of climate change and becoming um, able to respond to this sort of persistent idea that we're not really sure whether it's happening, whether humans have a role and what its impacts are because actually we know a ton about all three of those things and if the public in the U.S got behind those realities, that would go a really, really long way in the U.S. to propelling action. So I'm diving right into politics here, but I think that that's really, we're the last country, the last major country certainly on earth where this gets raised persistently as a question as if it wasn't already clear. And we are going to spend a bit of time today talking about communicating about these kinds of ecological changes to the public in a way that people can hear and understand. Um, so we will definitely dive into that topic at, at a greater depth in a moment. I think Joe Jordan had a question for Hey, you. so just a minute ago there, Erica, you said uh, boating? No, no, no. I, I mean, we are going to have sea level rise, uh, but not boating, but voting? That's what you said, <laughs> right? And by the way, I, I, got a, I got a random fact I have to interject here. You're calling from 8,000 feet altitude, right? Uh, 9,000. Okay, well, you know, 8,000 feet is where you're above a third of the atmosphere. Did you know that? <laughs> anyway. I had not that thought. She probably thinks about it every <laughs> single day. She's climbing a mountain. <laughs> the breath exactly. is getting... Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, one of the other, what can we do? Um, there are some desperate things. Like we heard earlier, someone's trying to free refreeze the Arctic with spray of water. Um, there's... Um, other people have said, what if we um, carried some of the plants and animals, you know, in arcs north because they can't get there that fast. Um, but this is potentially um, a lot of hubris and, and assumption that we will know what, what to save and how to save it. There's seed banks, you know, being saved. What are some of those kinds of solutions that give you pause and what actually have some real ecological promise to them? I mean, if it's something that has to go up in elevation, there's nowhere for it to go. I can understand something like the pika, those cute little bunny guys. There's nowhere else really for them to live except further north. So um, is there going to be a truckload of pikas heading for Alaska or something? Or <laughs> the polar bears, where can they go? You know, they, there's nowhere else. They're, they're talking about their breeding now with brown bears and it may just evolve to eat other things other than seals. But um, what are some of those kind of edgy but real conversations you've heard uh, scientists having? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a ton going on that's innovative and exciting adaptation. Um, one of the things you mentioned, things around us, um, and you, better rewind, you better rewind there, Erica. Um, we missed the last couple mm -hmm. sentences. Uh, and you know oh, what? Sorry. I'm actually going to recommend if you have a landline and you can call us on a better line, we're having a real... Suddenly, our communication devices failed us, and it sounds like it uh -oh. might, might be on your end, unfortunately. Um, but we could, we could wait while you call back if you want to try that. I want to be Let able to try. sure to hear you. Yeah. 
Let me try that. And in the meantime, um, I'm, I bet Adina has something she may sure. chime right she in. could say about that as well. So <laughs> okay. I'll call you back and be back in a minute. Thank you. So Adina, what do you think about that question about, you know, extraordinary measures, innovative ideas, people thinking outside the box when they're talking about saving species? I think we should think outside the box because the conditions are not the norm. So we have to be innovative. We have to think about creative ideas. We have to be resilient and plan. And we also have to acknowledge that maybe we might lose some species and there's going to be winners and losers. But we have to realize that and take advantage of opportunities and plan for what we can do to best save as much as we can, at least the important things. That's been the interesting conversation around the Endangered Species Act because it was one species at a time as it got low, there would be a huge plan set into place. And then people started thinking more about ecosystems, which is something Erica studies. And now we're, of course, hearing from our government that they might eliminate the organization, the agency that's supposed to help all this happen, which would be fairly disastrous for those species. Um, but are we think, are we, have we been thinking about this whole endangered species thing wrong because you can't just save them one species at a time? Well, I think species are part of the environment and they're part of the ecosystem. And if we take away their resources, their interactions with other organisms, their food, their water, then they might, even if we save them in captivity, they might not make it in nature. I mean, I think right now, for example, pandas are all pretty much um, bred by people, taken care by people, and are not going to be there in the wild. So unless we save the whole ecosystem, their food sources and their ability to live in nature, we can't really save them in nature. We can still maintain them in zoos. And I always find it so ironic that we never think of ourselves as potentially endangered because there's so many of us. But (laughs) when you're talking about our air and our water being wildly disrupted by climate change, it certainly should be in our imagination to think about that we are primates and we have an ecosystem we rely on. We've manipulated it hugely to become as many as we are. That doesn't mean we are not subject to the same laws of nature that everything else. When you exceed your resources, you... Is is Erica back with us? Hey, Erica, did you... Uh, Oh, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) I thought so, but maybe not. Not on that one. Okay, we'll just... uh, Keep on hoping that uh, she will come back from Boulder or wherever she was on on the phone. Um, But meanwhile, while we're waiting for her, I want to turn to you, Adina, and talk to uh, you about your research because it is related to what we've been discussing. And you are on the water resources side of seeing how uh, resources change. And so um, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about what you've been discovering. Since this is such a big week in water in California, when the Oroville Dam had 200,000 people evacuated because of potential failure, the lo- I guess it's the country's largest dam, right? Yes, it is. Quite a story. What did you think when you first heard that story? Well, what I thought is that that's the first one that happened in this kind of a scale and there's more to come and we have to be ready for that. We have to make sure that if dams break and they will because they're infrastructure and they have a lifetime, we need to be able to plan for that. We need to be able to capture the water so it doesn't go to waste or it doesn't flood and living uh, ecosystems and people and they're evacuated a lot of people over there. Again, with better planning and maybe when they redo the infrastructure, this water can be used for recharge of aquifers so we can use it. That's part of planning in a global sense for water security, diversifying our water resources. We all talk about global climate change. However, the global climate change manifests itself differently in different environments and 
people and communities and ecosystems really will be impacted differently and we have to look at adaptation and acclimation to local conditions so while you know Erica was talking about Alaska and the, the higher latitudes they might be a losing sea ice or permafrost over there here in California one of the expected changes is changes in the precipitation and the water system with having more precipitation as rain and less as the snowpack uh, more extreme events where longer droughts and then longer uh, years like this year where we have a lot of floods are going to happen so with that in mind we can think about how people can adapt, acclimate, take advantage and plan for these extremes. Well, it certainly was an alarming, but perhaps not unsurprising story to hear that after, what, five years of drought, we had a potential dam failure from overflow. That was um, surprising and scary for a lot of people. And the way the news cycle, now I'm going to transition to the other topic, the way the news cycle covers things like what is it, the bombogenesis, this giant pineapple splat that California is about to get and has been getting as a isolated, you know, weather story and the, the, the dam as, you know, a f- kind of an accidental failure, but not the connection between all these historic events, which is something you're able to do. And I think Eric is back with us as well. I don't know if you heard that last bit of conversation, Erica. Hi, can you hear me better this time? A little bit. You're still with us, a little crackly, but we can definitely understand you, and I'll let you know if if that ceases to be the case. We were just talking about extreme weather shifts and um, trying to understand them in a historic context as Adina does rather than what the news does, which is an isolated story that kind of falls off the front page after the danger, immediate danger is over. And um, talking about communicating climate change, we have some slides that Adina brought in about communicating about this. And if you are listening on the radio and you want to go check them out on our Facebook page, go to uh, Radio Planet Watch on Facebook and you will find them um, on there as JPEGs. So you can look at the photographs of her slides and um, maybe the two of you can tell us how you go about communicating these complex scientific issues to the public um, in, in a clear way so that they can understand what's at stake in their own lives. And I'll start with you, Adina, and then, Erica, you can chime in. Well, I, I think since we don't always, we're not always uh, able to convince everybody or to make everybody focus on the facts, I think what really matters is the tone matters, the narrative matters, and making a connection connecting to people matters so the way we need or I try to go about communicating uh, issues of science climate particularly climate change is removing trying to remove the doomsday factor trying to remove the blame factor and trying to help people understand for the sel- from their selves the scientific process and how they can look at or understand science facts, science uh, principles, be able to look at observations. And then if they can do that, they can arrive to their own conclusions and uh, not bring a belief factor into the game. And I I see on your slide, you said that 40% of Americans can... Oops. I see on your slide that uh, 40% of Americans cannot name a fossil fuel and 51% cannot name a renewable energy source. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, Erica, what have you found when you travel around the country speaking about this issue? Um, it, for me, in terms of communication, you know, I think it's really, really important to do two things. One is that people are experiential learners. I, and what I mean by that is that I think people make observations about the world in the most fundamental way. Everybody's doing science all the time, but it's hard to see um, a change in the likelihood of extremes or a sort of decades-long shift in mean temperatures or the frequency of drought. You know, these are things that maybe with a little bit of um, direction becomes much easier for people to see. So I like to show people things like time series of the polar ice cap extent um, and show people long-term weather data from where they live 
because you might not notice over 30 years the changes are growing, and many people do, but if you don't, it, it can be helpful to, to sort of be able to experience that information um, in a visual way, and so I think that's one thing that's really important. The other thing I'd say is that, you know, it's really, really easy to go into denial or despair when presented with what an enormous problem this is and how complex the solutions are, but I do think there are a lot of things, as I said before, that, that people can do, that governments can do, and so I tend to want to focus there and to talk about things like the incredible moves that China has made just in the last month to cut down on its carbon emissions, and it's not really complicated stuff. They're just doing things like canceling plans for hundreds of power plants that would be coal-powered and then enacting plans to build a lot of wind energy capacity. Um, that's really, really um promising and it, it points to a place to put energy and put energy into um, efforts in China and India and California and places where there is a lot of receptivity um, to moving on this issue of reducing uh, the pace of, of climate change. I think it's also really exciting to point out things like how much energy markets in the U.S. have actually changed. And so even if, for instance, the clean energy plan goes away, Wind has achieved price parity with fossil fuel sources in about a quarter of the U.S. now, and that's expanding rapidly, and also in 30 other countries. So, you know, even if you are really, really wedded to the idea that the market has to solve this, there are ways to, you know, there, there are hopeful examples out there, and there are ways to help nudge those changes um, over the edge. It's not like it's a really, really uphill battle everywhere in the world, even though it feels that way sometimes here. Right. If you just joined us, I'm speaking with Erica Zavaleta. She is a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and she'll be speaking at the upcoming Climate Change Conference. And this is Planet Watch. If you'd like to ask our guests a question, we have a little bit more time at Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com. And I don't know if we have any questions just yet, but if you'd like to slip them in under the wire, we also have Dr. Adina Payton in the studio, and I'd like to give her a chance to respond to what Erica just said, and then we'll go to your question. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I completely agree with Erica that people need to understand and observation and hands-on and having their own experience is the best way to do that. So if you can demonstrate in a classroom or in an exhibit, for example, how greenhouse gas work, and people look at this themselves, they can, if any misconception or misunderstanding they have can be changed by their personal experience. And then once you know the fundamentals, you can then look at the same thing that Erica says, records of changes of concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and understand the consequences of that. And similarly, the other point she made about not only communicating doomsday, but actually pointing out the opportunities, because there are opportunities over here that we have to understand and we have to prepare and we have to plan for, whether it's, you know, thinking about different industries and if putting investing in them. And I did notice, connecting it back to the climate conference, one whole track at the conference is communicating about climate change with the public. So a lot of scientists will be there figuring out how to make it clear and understandable and simple for people to grasp. I, you know, I don't always think it's the science that's the problem. I think it's people have an emotional resistance to believing there's something big happening to our world that feels potentially uh, destabilizing. <laughs> there's a natural denial built into many people who, who don't see it in their everyday lives. And as you said, if you can connect it, it becomes less of a abstract thought. Erica, I was still scratching my head a little bit about uh, how you see the relationship between what you're doing professionally in your research uh, and this issue of, you know, climate communication or, or policy. Uh, what, what's the, or what's your view uh -huh. of that? <laughs> um. That's a great question. So I think part of why is that, as I said, you know, I, as an ecologist, I look at the effects of climate change and other environmental impacts on natural systems. But I've, for a long time, just been very, very committed to also working with other sectors and working on practical solutions. And so a big chunk of my work is scientific and policy and practice responses to the impacts of climate change. So 
studying how, at a national and an international level, people are responding to things like changing water availability and wildfire frequency and um, changing levels of threat to wildlife that people care about. Um, and then, you know, also looking at you know, what works. Um, does it work to move things? My student, Sarah Skickney, and I have been looking at hundreds of cases in the past. This is kind of like what Adina does, looking at the past to understand the future. Hundreds of cases where people have already moved things, not because of climate change, but for other reasons, to get them, reasons to get them out of the way of an introduced predator that otherwise would drive them extinct, for instance. And so looking at those hundreds of cases where you've actually already done this, to understand how do you make it work, for what kinds of species does it work. So um, what are people doing and what works from a scientific and a policy perspective both I think are really important. And then the other thing I'd say, and this echoes what Adina has already um, spoken about, is that our jobs as scientists, is part of it is to do the science, but then a big part of the scientific process is communicating it. And that's not just to other scientists. That's also to the public and to policymakers and so on. And so that's an area that I felt really strongly about making sure I'm contributing to as a scientist for a long time. Adina, do you find that it's become easier? I think that it's not necessarily easier, but it's something we all have to do. It's our responsibility as scientists to be able to communicate to everyone and not just to our peers, because we're the one who know. And with this knowledge, we have such a tool that we can take advantage of and be able to communicate. And I think that it's something that can be learned. I think it maybe does not come naturally to all scientists, but scientists can learn how to communicate better to the general public. And do you think we're in an era of um, anti-intellectualism and, and anti-science? Is, is there a reason why a bunch of scientists are planning a march to Washington? And um, some people would say, why are you getting involved with politics? But are we in some new era that may, in the United States anyway, that may cause people who are normally shy and quiet and in the laboratory to feel like they have to step out and say something or do something different? Well, it's about time that we do. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that, that a lot of your colleagues agree. I, I think of people like James Hansen who have been so vocal and he's even been arrested a few times because of his conviction that this is real and people need to pay attention. Um, but he has been attacked by some of the people who want to silence him. So it's come at quite a price for him. Maybe he felt like it was a price he was willing to pay for his grandchildren, but he has been attacked personally. Yes, that, that is true. And I think partly this whole issue of climate change has become so politicized that we do end up with personal attacks and with people believing or not believing. And that's why I think we have to kind of try to roll the wheel back and try to look at why is it that people have these very strong and emotional feelings specifically about this issue and try to maybe diffuse some of that and come back to the level that people can understand us, take out some of the emotion and go back to change the tone and the narrative and try to connect with people the way that they can understand us without the blame factor, without pointing fingers, but rather looking for That's solutions. Erica? I totally agree with that focus on solutions. I do feel like, um, just as you said, this is a really, really different time in the U.S. Um, I think the nature of knowledge has really gotten muddied. And Adina, you used the word believe. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've let happen as scientists is to let that word creep into areas where it doesn't apply. Like there are things that you can believe in or not. Absolutely. And then there are things where you don't get to decide to believe in them or not, except, you know, in, if you're, what you're referring to is, well, I'm, I'm observing the world. I'm looking at the evidence and you know I, I don't get to have a belief or not about gravity or <laughs> cancer or the effectiveness of modern medicine or how the climate has been changing and what that has to do with the changes that people there are no alternate the facts mm -hmm. there, uh, that's right and this whole idea that you know exactly <laughs> reality is is 
but all of reality is sort of a matter of opinion. Um, <laughs> we let that slip in the U.S. I don't feel like that's really happened everywhere else in the world to the same degree. And so mm. I think we have a real responsibility as scientists to get clear about that. Yeah, yeah. Tommy had a question. And yeah, we just got a question from Ray Newkirk. And as a vegetarian my entire life, I feel this um, question. <laughs> um, the question to both Adina and Erica is, um, in speaking of solutions, I never hear anyone talk about not eating meat. Uh, what do the guests think about the effects of the livestock industry on our environment? And yeah, I'm also very interested to hear what our Adina, you, you deal a lot with water, and, and I guess one of the impacts is, is use of water for crops that, that then are fed to the animals. What other impacts? Is methane an issue? All of the above. I mm -hmm. think the lower on the food chain we eat, the better... The, low, the smaller our carbon footprint and the better it's for the environment. Having said that, I typically don't tell people, oh, you have to be vegetarian, you don't need to eat meat, but I explain the consequences and let people make their choices. It might be reducing the number of days a week they eat meat. They, it might be being buying more sustainable crops. It might be buying a hybrid car or an electric car. So if people have a plethora of solutions where they can contribute, I think it is more likely that they will pick and choose what they can do and contribute in that way as opposed of just, again, going all the way extreme and alienating people. Yeah. Mm, good point. I, I mean, agree. if you had a chart that said, here's what this cost you in carbon, eat a hamburger or drive your Prius, you know, your pick, um, but both of them are equal. If you knew that, maybe you'd make a wiser choice than guessing all the time. If only they were equal, though. Well, we don't know. <laughs> By the way, Ray, thank, Ray, thanks a lot for that question. And just so you know, we actually have addressed it on this show two or three times, but only in passing mentions. Now, that's not because we're afraid to bring... We're going to bring up the issue. We'll have a whole show or more <laughs> about this, okay? And meanwhile, I recommend to everybody listening, you, list, you watch this film. The name sounds really weird. It's Cowspiracy. And that is a real eye-opener if half of it is true. And I still need to get it and watch it and re-watch it and re-watch it and try to vet and verify all the claims that are made in there. I'll bet you a whole bunch of them are right. I know Ray <laughs> has seen that movie also. Uh, anyway, that's your homework, dear viewers, <laughs> dear listeners. And then we'll have a show on this thing, <laughs> on, the, on the whole meat and can thing. Can I just add something? I would love to just point out also that just in general, it's, I, I mean, if you're going to assign homework... The, the homework to me would be, think about the, the life cycle of the thing it is that you're consuming, whether it's the new Prius you're buying or the meat you're eating or the industrial broccoli. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not, you have to ask where things are coming from. And one of the things that drives me crazy is, you know, these parking spots that are special reserved for low emissions vehicles, you have to make the car. So you have to look at what are the relative costs of buying the new thing that <laughs> is lower emissions um, that had parts shipped from all over the world to construct it, in, you know, relative to um, keeping something older that's still working. I mean, I, I just think that whether it's meat versus a vegetarian diet that we're talking about or buying a hybrid car versus, you know, making something continue to work that you've had in the past, that um, it's not always the simple answer. It's not always, you know, right. the yep. new fancy thing is, is better and it's not always that I mean, as, as a matter of principle, lower on the food chain is better. But, you know, if you're raising your own chickens or buying your neighbor's beef that's grass-fed and, you know, rain-irrigated, right. that's a really different thing than the mm -hmm. industrial meat that's totally in that movie that Joe's talking about. Right. And, and really one thing you're pointing out is the complexity of our worlds have put it back to consumers to try to figure this out. And, and really... In some ways, that's just not fair. That, that That's why we have organized governments for policy so that it's helping us figure this stuff out. Because to, the way the um, supply chain of all this material goods that we consume is so complicated, even figuring out which parts are made in this country is almost impossible. So how would you figure out which has got the higher carbon footprint, a Prius or, you know, a leaf? So really um, standardizing our approaches to things so that consumers can make good choices without having to become consumer scientists themselves <laughs> would and be nice. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. I think that's incredibly, policy is 
I'm sorry. <laughs> we're all <laughs> nodding our heads. <laughs> I guess I just wanted to remind that where policy comes from is the people you elect. And I was really mortified at how many people uh, chose not to vote in this most recent election. I think that's a very, very fundamental part of, uh, even though we're talking about science, we're talking about the environment, um, being civically engaged, voting, making sure that there aren't barriers to people being able to register to vote. That is a fundamental way. That's how democracy works. And so in order to get those policies, which you're absolutely right, are the, are the ones we need. Um, Got to elect the right people. To, yeah. Erica, I want to thank you. vote and defend others' rights. Go vote. Thank you, Erica Zavaleta, for being here with us by phone from Colorado. And thank you to Adina Payton, who is a professor of marine sciences at UC Santa Cruz. Um, thank you both for being here on Planet Watch. Any, any parting great. thought from Adina? Anything burning to say? <laughs> I, I'm just amazed that in this period time of such wide available knowledge, a lot of this information is not broadly available. Well, we're working to We're working that. on that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Go for Thank it. Thank you both for being Thank here. Thank you for having us. This Thank is a great you. show. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, yeah I look forward it. to seeing you back in the cruise here soon down along Westcliff Drive there, Erica. <laughs> Good. I'll be back next week. Uh, we have a couple more minutes to close here, and I would like to mention that we are on YouTube.com on KSCO Global Channel, and but you can find the archive shows here on Planet Watch, uh, Radio Planet Watch on Facebook, our page. You can go there and find um, the audio and the video archived later on in case you just tuned into the tail end of our show and wished you had caught the whole thing. Next week on the program, we'll have a fantastic guest, somebody who's appearing at the Climate Conference. And Joe, if you could just give a really short capsule yeah, of that, who our next guest will be next week. That'll be Mark Jacobson of Stanford. A lot of people have heard of him. Uh, uh, he and I actually used to work in the same office at NASA Ames. But anyway, he's uh, a world expert now on getting much more of our energy or maybe even all of it from renewable energy. And, uh, yeah, we'll be doing probably a phone interview with him. Uh, but anyway, it'll be very interesting. <laughs> so, And I'm looking in. to set up some recording uh, techniques up there so I can get some of these other scientists yeah. who are on the panels uh, to be on this show later uh -huh. on. So just a few minutes we have left. Any last thoughts, Joe, on... Um, well, anything um, you would like to leave us with? Yeah, we're, we're bracing for wild and woolly weather here in the West with a lot of wind. And hey, we were talking about wind power, and I have just a little interesting fact for you. Uh, when the wind speed doubles, guess what happens to the actual powerfulness, the wind power? Well, it's a cubic function. You can't tell the answer till next week, oh. or it won't be a brain teaser. Well, no, I got another brain teaser okay. for you. Okay. I'll tell you the answer on this one. If it doubles, well, a factor of two cubed is eight. The wind power goes up by eight. So, okay, now here comes a... If it triples, if the wind speed triples, what happens to the level of wind power? Again, it's a cubic function, so a factor of three... It blows down trees? To the, <laughs> yes. Three to the third power. Three cubed is... 27. 27 times <laughs> as powerful. So there you go. Now here comes the little puzzler for you. Geography and world geometry. If you're in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska, say, facing directly towards Washington, D.C. And you can see Sarah Palin. <laughs> you, could say almost, you could say almost the root of all evil. You are facing directly to Washington, D.C. What direction of the compass are you facing? What is the bearing of Washington, D.C. from Anchorage, Alaska? I'll give you a hint. I mean, everybody would think you look at a map, a Mercator projection of the world, looks like Washington, D.C. is southeast. But <laughs> you are not facing southeast if you are facing along a straight line along the curved surface of the Earth, geodesic line. Don't to Washington. Tell, You're don't facing tell, some don't. other direction. No, I'm just saying it's not southeast. <laughs> so anyway, we'll tell the answer. <laughs> Stay tuned next week for the <laughs> suspenseful conclusion. And, and here's, here's your homework. Get a string. Get a globe. Find a globe somewhere. Put mm. a string on it from Anchorage to Washington, D.C. Make that string totally straight. And then look at the latitude lines locally right around Anchorage and you will see what direction the string is facing right there. I mean, as you travel along that line, the bearing does indeed change. And eventually it does become southeast the farther towards Washington you go. But right at Anchorage, it's very something cool. else. It's something else. Very surprising. <laughs> very, very cool. And one really quick thing. Go look up something called NASA Eyes. There is... Um, 
a simulation. You can get an application on your computer and it will show you the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, the amount of heat, the amount of sea level rise. And this is all from the lower geostationary satellites. It's about 12 different data sets you can simulate and it will show you in color 3D mm. uh, what all these things are. One last quick one, which Rachel and I did this week. Uh, it's going to be raining, at least here and around Santa Cruz this week, uh, like today, big time, I think. Go out and look at a puddle or a, a little shell with a pool of water in it. And on the surface of the water, you will see these little silver balls of water dancing and gliding and skittering around. It's a weird surface tension effect. And um, we have a video of it that I want to show you sometime, or we'll put it up on our Facebook page. But um, you saw those, right, last week, Rachel? Or you, oh, hey, he's got it on there now. All right, Look at that. Does. He's got it on there. Look at all those little balls of water. Those are not bubbles. <laughs> They're little spheres full of water that, by weird surface tension effect, are skittering around on the surface of the water. They're created when the, at the impact when the raindrop hits the water. Anyway, that is, that's a world premiere video. Nobody else that I know of has ever shown that on video. Gerald Walker, who wrote The Flying Circus of Physics, he wrote about the phenomenon, but I've noticed it for years, and I showed it to Ken Norris, and he was blown away. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, we want to thank you for tuning in once again to Planet Watch right here on your radio station dial, and we will be <laughs> back with you again next week. You can write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Joe Jordan. <laughs> and Tommy and Jason. Thanks so much. Hi, everybody. everybody. And Adina, thanks you so thank much. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Many scientists now agree that the world's climate is slowly warming. The increased use of fossil fuels create gases, such as carbon dioxide, which trap heat in our atmosphere, much like a greenhouse. The question is, how will this affect the survival of plants and animals worldwide? I'm Jim Metzner, and this is the Pulse of the Planet. Every species has its preferred climate, and as climate changes, they'll try and find that preferred climate by shifting their range if necessary. Lee Hanna is a senior researcher with Conservation International's Center for Applied Biodiversity Science. He and his colleagues have been working on computer models which predict the impacts of global climate change. Hannah's work is focused on species of plants found in South Africa. As climate warms, species will probably move upslope and towards the poles. In many cases, that may put species that are found on mountaintops at risk, also species with small ranges or lowland species that may not be able to get to mountain slopes and find equable climates. Some species that our study showed to be particularly sensitive to climate change have already been observed declining in the field due to warming and drought in South Africa. Scientists believe that on average it takes about a million years for a species to evolve. So the sort of extinctions we're seeing in the study will take place on a very short time frame with respect to a million years. And for that reason, the species that will lost won't be replaced by natural processes, and it's a very serious problem. Trying to assess what the actual impacts might be is the best way to avoid those impacts because the future is in our control in terms of being able to control greenhouse gases and also in being able to design conservation strategies to respond to this problem. Hannah's study suggests that as many as one million species of plants and animals worldwide could be facing extinction as a result of climate change. Pulse of the Planet is made possible by the National Science Foundation.